This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Philippians chapter number one, if you would. We're continuing our series entitled Magnify Jesus. If you missed any of the messages so far, you can always get caught up at our website at huicala.church. Uh, you can subscribe to our podcast. My favorite way to stay caught up with what's going on at Huicala is through the Huicala app. And so if you don't have that downloaded yet, do it today. Uh, you can download the app and uh, if you go to the button that says podcast and click on the link for today's message, there's actually a, a button that says notes. You can click in fill in notes and you can actually type your notes uh, on your device in your web browser and then email them to yourself when you're done. You can also download a PDF to your device and fill it out that way, whatever you want to do. Uh, just take some good notes. Uh, maybe you just want to grab a sheet of paper and a journal uh, and write down some thoughts this morning. That would be awesome too. But the most important thing, follow along, get the most out of every single message. Uh, I like to write stuff down. I like to write in my Bible uh, because I w- want to remember the things that God spoke to me about. And so I want to encourage you to do that uh, today. Last couple of weeks, we've been taking a look at Philippians chapter 1, verse number 6, and uh, it took us three weeks, but today we're going to finish verse 6. How about that? Uh, next week, we're going to follow on to verse number 7 and, and beyond. But uh, we've been taking a look at this uh, idea that God has begun a work in us, and He's going to continue it. Uh, we'll take a look at that today and exactly what that means for us. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse number 1, just to give you by way of uh, context a little bit of background on this passage. The church of Philippi was a church that Paul himself had started uh, and pastored it for a while. It was his first church that he ever started in Europe, uh, was started in Greece. And so Paul started the church of Philippi, moved on and began planting churches elsewhere. About 10 years later, as Paul is in prison uh, awaiting trial, uh, really more of a house arrest than you and I would think of as like a prison cell, uh, he writes this letter to the church of Philippi and it's a letter of joy. And so we, uh, find, we get the opportunity to read the church at Philippi's mail. Uh, because God included that as part of Scripture for us. And so uh, Philippians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse number 1 and read through verse 6 this morning. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints which are in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Over the last couple of weeks, we've taken a look at how that phrase begun a good work and is only used twice in all of scripture. Both times it speaks of the work of salvation. Uh, that God saved you and he's now begun something. He's kicked off uh, the beginning of something great that's gonna take place in your life had the opportunity to go through some premarital counseling uh, yesterday with some friends, and we were talking through this, and we were talking about the wedding date, how it was getting closer, and he goes, man, I I can almost see the finish line of the the wedding date approaching. I go, that's not the finish line you see, that's the starting line that you see, right? (laughs) Sometimes it's funny, though, that when we as Christians get saved, we think to ourselves, oh, that's it, I made it. I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a child of God, that's it. No, no, that's the starting line, that's where we begin And God's going to continue to do a work in you until the day that you see him face to face. You're just getting started in walking with Jesus. You haven't finished anything yet. 
And so as Paul begins to write, he says, God's begun a good work in you. He's going to continue this work. And as we've broken down this, the first thing that needs to take place is that you and I need to be saved. We took a look at two weeks ago how God began the work of justification in us. Now, justification is a legal term that speaks of guilt versus innocence. It's the process whereby God takes a sinful man and makes him holy and righteous before God, where God declares us righteous not based on what we've done or how good we are, but because of what Jesus has done for us. You see, you and I were guilty in our sin before God. You and I had broken God's law. You and I were in danger of God's punishment, but Jesus came and paid the price for us sometimes referred to justification as the beautiful exchange whereby God took Jesus' righteousness and placed it upon us and he took our sinfulness and placed it upon Jesus and declared us righteous. Now because Jesus wore our sin, because he bore our sin, the Bible says, in his body, God saw his sin and sin always has to be punished. And so the Bible says that Jesus, he who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus That Jesus, because he took my sin upon him, God says, you've got to be punished. And Jesus went to the cross and he suffered and he bled and he died as payment, as punishment for, as judgment for our sins and the sins of mankind. He rose again the third day victorious, showing that sin, death, and hell had no power over him whatsoever, but he was all powerful and conquered sin, death, and hell once and for all. And that all who would come to faith in Jesus Christ would be forgiven and could also stand in Jesus Christ's righteousness, this process of justification that we refer to. Then last week we took a look at how that work just started the day that you got saved and it continues on through a process we refer to as sanctification. The word sanctified comes from the Latin word sanctus, which means uh, to be distinct or to to set apart. And the idea was that God had you and I and we were part of the world and he took us and he took us out of this world and he set us apart for himself. The room that you're seated in this morning has an interesting history associated with it. When we moved into 1216 Waimani Street, which is the the front portion of the building uh, that you're in this morning where our our children's ministry are forward, that used to be our main auditorium over there uh, three years ago. And uh, over on this side was a Korean massage parlor that stayed open until 2 a.m. on the weekends because everybody knows, you know, you got shoulder pain and stuff like that at 1230 at night. Where would you want to go except the seedy place on uh, Kona Street to get that kink worked out of your shoulder, right? Needless to say, it was a shady, shady place over here. Uh, There were multiple uh, police investigations that took place over on this side of the building, 1215 Kona Street. Uh, There was uh, even one time an FBI sting uh, that took down some illegal operations that were taking place in this very building that you're seated in this morning. But you know what happened? Whenever we signed the lease to this portion of the building, God took this building and all the, the sin that was associated with it, and he sanctified this and set it apart for himself. Now, this building is just four concrete walls is all that it is. There's nothing special about it, but God has used it for a special purpose. You see, it was once used for the world and it was used for sin, but now it's set apart and it's used for God's kingdom and it's used to to bring forth a greater purpose now. That's the picture of you and I. You and I were a part of this world. You and I were a part of sin. You and I were doing our own thing. God took us the day that he saved us and he pulled us out of that and set us apart for himself. That's the idea of sanctification. The New Hampshire Baptist Confession of 1833. I've never read the entire confession in my entire life because we as Bible-believing Christians put our faith in the Word of God, not confessions or creeds. But this confession has a really good definition of sanctification that I came across that I really liked that I wanted to share with you this morning.
We believe that sanctification is the process by which we, according to the will of God, are made partakers of his holiness, the way that you and I are made to be like Jesus. That's a progressive work. That it begun in regeneration, the day that we were saved, and is carried on in the hearts of believers by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's at work in me and changes me to be more like Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the sealer and the comforter and the continual use of the appointed means continues to help us to be more like Jesus, especially the word of God, self-examination, self-denial, watchfulness and prayer. I love that. That you and I were once partakers of sin. God set us apart for himself and we continue this process of becoming more like Christ and we'll do that till the day that we die. How do we do it? We do it by the indwelling and the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. We do it by using the scriptures to point out our sinful condition and how we can make that right. The Bible says that the Bible's good for doctrine, reproof, for instruction, and for correction. And that the Bible helps us to be more like Jesus Christ. We do it by spending time in prayer and examining our own selves and denying our own selfish desires and mortifying or putting to death the deeds of our flesh. That's sanctification. It's a lifelong process that we go through. So sanctification is a lifetime process of becoming like Jesus. You and I will continue to struggle with sin until the day that we die. The Apostle Paul says uh, that I know my flesh, it fights against each other. The things that I want to do, uh, I, I don't do those. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from the state that I'm in? And the next answer to that is Jesus Christ can. So God delivers us from our sinful condition, but we'll continue to fight against it. Uh, the Bible tells us in the book of Galatians chapter five that the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. And that's why the Bible says, walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That this process of trying to be like Jesus and forsaking sin and following after the right thing and righteousness, it's gonna be a lifelong process that we go through. But there's coming a day for all of those who are Christians, all the saved, there's coming a day for you and I where we'll get to see Jesus face to face. And at that moment that we see Jesus Christ face to face, the Bible says there'll be no more sin. There'll be no physical limitations. That when we see Jesus, we'll be made like him, and we sometimes refer to this as glorification. So justification, the day that you were saved, we got sanctification, the day that the, the process by which we're made more like Jesus. And then we have glorification, the last stage of salvation where believers attain complete conformity to the image and likeness of the glorified Christ. They're freed from both physical and spiritual defect. And glorification ensures that believers will never again experience bodily decay, death, or illness, and will never again struggle with sin. Man, how awesome is that gonna be? The physical limitations of my body no longer exist. Uh, I'll no longer get hungry. I'll no longer be sad. I'll no longer struggle against selfishness or anger or pride. The idea of uh, wanting more or getting more from this life, all that will be gone because I'll be made perfect like Jesus. Man, what a day that's gonna be when we're glorified to be like Jesus. This would be considered the final stage of our salvation. So when Paul says in verse six, he who begun a good work in you, the day that he got saved, he didn't just save you and then leave you there. He's continuing this work in your life day by day, week by week, month by month, year after year to be more like Jesus Christ. And then there's coming a day when you're not gonna fight against your flesh anymore. You're gonna be made just like Jesus. That's the end goal here, glorification. And then from that point forward, you'll never deal with sin again. You'll never deal with disappointment again. You'll never be frustrated ever again because you're gonna be 
exactly like Jesus. Man, how awesome will that be? One author put it this way, that if, if justification, sanctified, glorified, justification is the inception where we begin our journey with Christ. Sanctification is the progression that we continue on being more like Christ. Then glorification is the consummation. This is the end goal. This is where God's trying to get us to. And the day that God saved you, he kicked off a process that will end up with you with Jesus, like Jesus, completely and totally perfect for all of eternity. Now, how awesome is that? That's the idea of glorification. Now, to understand glorification, we need to understand what happens after this life. The Christian life is not about just making sure that uh, we live a good life or live a moral life or we try to do the right thing. The end goal of the Christian life is to be made like Jesus Christ and know about eternity. And so, the Bible tells us that when we die, you go one of two places. It's not left to chance. It's not left to happenstance. It's not, when I die, I hope I go to heaven or I hope I don't go to hell. Some people incorrectly believe that, you know, hell is a place that is prepared only for bad people. And the problem with that is, is that we are all bad people. The Bible says that the default destination for every human being on planet Earth is hell. Default. The only hope that you and I have to make it to heaven is not our good works or what we do. It's what Jesus Christ has done for us. So it's important to understand that when we talk about what happens after this life, the Bible says this. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. That you and I live this life one time, and after that, we'll stand before God, and we'll give an account of our life, and we'll be judged according to not how good or bad our life was. We'll be judged based on what did you do with Jesus. It's important to understand that for the unsaved, they will stand at the great white throne judgment. <coughs> if you have your Bibles handed, turn to Revelation chapter 20, if you would, this morning. I love the Bible. I love God's word. The Bible has seen me through thick and thin. God's promises have taken me through some of the darkest hours of my life. I love the Bible. But frankly, there are parts of the Bible that I wish weren't there. Revelation 20 is one of them. One of the heaviest, probably most sobering passages of Scripture in all of the Bible is Revelation chapter 20. Starting in verse number 11, I would encourage you, 11 through 15, just circle these, start these, or using an app on your phone or a mobile device, highlight these verses. You might even commit these to memory because these are probably some of the heaviest verses in all of Scripture. It talks about what happens after this life. They saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. I saw the dead small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. 
Whosoever is not found written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. We refer to this as the great white throne judgment because in verse number uh, 11 here it says, I saw one that sat upon a great white throne, that's God. And sometimes people flippantly say, well, you can't tell me what to believe. You can't tell me what to do. Only God can judge me. And you're absolutely right. I don't have the authority to judge anyone. But God's word has already judged your sin. God's word already tells you how it's going to end up. Only God can judge you. You're right. But he's already told us how he will judge, what the requirements are, what the consequences are. That's what we find ourselves here in, in Revelation 20. It's very clear. You'll stand before God. He'll open a book. If your name is not written in that book, you'll be cast in the lake of fire for all of eternity. That's it. There's no chance for you to plead your case. You don't get to ask God questions at this point. You don't get to say, but what about all the really good stuff that I did? Doesn't that count for something? There's no scale that's gonna be put out in heaven where we take your good versus your bad works and we, we measure those out. That doesn't happen. It'll never happen. You'll stand before God. If your name's not in the book, you go to hell. Period, end of story. There's no place called purgatory. There's no place that we can pray you out of. We can't give enough money or pray enough or light enough candles to get you out of hell. You're there, you're stuck. There's no second chances. That's it. This is one of the most sobering passages in all of the Bible because I know people who will stand before God at the great white throne judgment and God will judge them according to their sin. You work with people who will stand at the great white throne judgment and be cast into hell for all of eternity. You have people in your family that will stand before God and will be judged according to their works. And friend, if this doesn't grip you, you don't fully understand the depths and the gravity of a passage like this. When we talk about the great white throne judgment. This is the second death. Verse 15 says that. And again, you should underline those words, second death, because the Bible tells us in Romans chapter six, the wages of sin is death. And sometimes people look at that flippantly like, well, everybody's gonna die, you know? You step on a cockroach, it dies. Everything dies, that's just life. It's not talking about a physical death as a result of your sin. The wages of sin is death. That means a second death is coming for you. It's much worse than the first. Because your first death will be over fairly quickly. Your second death lasts for all of eternity and there's no getting out of that. That's heavy. But here's the problem. All of us are born into this world headed that direction. The truth of the matter is also all of us deserve God's wrath, judgment, punishment. All of us deserve to go to hell. Again, the wages of sin is death. The good news is the gift of God is eternal life. God doesn't want you to die. God doesn't want you to go to hell. God wants you to be saved from this punishment. He wants you to be saved from wrath because this here is the punishment for sin. The Bible says that everyone will receive the punishment of all of their deeds of their life and this is where you pay. This is where you settle up. If you think of life as a meal that you eat, this is when the waiter brings the bill at the end and you have to pay up. But this isn't something you can pay and be done with. This is something that you'll pay with for all of eternity. The price of your sin is death 
and separation from God in a place called hell. And, and sometimes people say, oh, you know, I'm going through hell right now. You don't fully grasp what hell is like. And whatever you're going through right now has an end date eventually. Hell has no expiration date. Well, I, th- I think hell's just whatever you make it. No. Hell is what God makes it. It's a place of eternal wrath, punishment, judgment, and the worst part about hell is not the physical pain, although that's no doubt going to be part of it. It's the complete and total absence of God and His righteousness. That's hell. That's heavy. And again, God forgive us as Christians whenever we're so smug to say, huh, I'm not worried about it. I'm not going there. I'm good. I'm thankful that you're good. Meanwhile, people that you know and love are headed for hell. They're in danger of God's wrath and condemnation and punishment. And we sit around with a smug look on our face and we're thankful that we're going to heaven. Help that to never be the case for us. Help us to have a burden for the lost and understand that people that we know and love and people that we don't know and love will spend eternity separated from God somewhere. The end result for those at the great white throne judgment is hell for all of eternity. We live in a very uh, population-dense area here in Honolulu. In our church, where our church building is located, 50 yards across the street live hundreds, if not over 1,000 residents, 50 yards from here. There are people 50 yards from where we sit this morning that will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. That should stir something up in us. That should cause us to say, I don't think I'm really okay with that. Good, because I'm not either. We should be very keenly aware of the fact that there are people that you'll see tomorrow morning at the office or people you'll sit with tomorrow morning at your school or in your class, people that you'll wave at as you go get the mail this afternoon or tomorrow that are going to spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Several years ago, I did some research on the demographics of Honolulu. Honolulu is a very spiritual place and the fact that there's a lot of spirituality Uh, Even Hawaiian culture is very deeply rooted in spirituality. But two-thirds of people that live in the city of Honolulu, and again, I don't have all the statistics in front of me, and this was several years ago, but the the study said two-thirds of people who live in the city of Honolulu have no religious affiliation whatsoever. They're just not concerned about spiritual things. That's heavy. Two-thirds. Of those two-thirds, the 33% who claim to be Spiritual, half of those would adhere to Roman Catholicism, which preaches another gospel. It is not a gospel of grace and salvation. It's a gospel, false gospel of works. So if we're, again, looking at statistics and numbers and things like that, we're getting closer to around maybe, you know, the rest of the percentage that they have. And basically when it came down to the ones who called themselves Christians, and how many of you know it's easy to check a box that says, says Christian, even if you're not a born-again child of God? The number of people who self-identified as Christian was less than 10%, more like 8% or so. And then I remembered, this is why we came to the city of Honolulu. This is why we planted who we call a Baptist church, because we wanted a strong gospel-preaching church in the center of the city that would turn out radical followers of Jesus Christ that would go out and change the world and change eternity with the truth of the gospel. That's why we're here. 
But keep those statistics in mind for a second. One in 10, if we were just being generous and say, one in 10 people that you'll see tomorrow is a born-again Christian. That means nine people are not. Angela and I went to uh, Starbucks yesterday. As we stood in Starbucks, you know, they've got two people and they're making drinks for the 15 people that decided that Starbucks for them that day was essential. <laughs> we were one of those. Um, but as you're standing there, there's probably, I don't know, 10 of us or so standing in there. I know that I'm saved. I know my wife is saved. But statistically speaking, the other eight people in there were going to spend eternity separated from God. You know, the worst part about yesterday is I didn't have any gospel tracts on me. I didn't, we usually leave one like where you make your drink and they have all the stuff out. Now they don't have the stuff out anymore because you can't touch it. You have to ask for everything. But uh, we normally like leave a gospel tract. I didn't. You know what? I just didn't think about it. I should think about it. I should think about it every single day. At your workplace, if you've got 10 people that are in your office, statistically speaking, probably nine of them don't know Jesus. That should bother us. We went to, uh, we went to uh, Target yesterday. Target's essential. My wife assured me of that. Um, <laughs> she went to Target. If you've ever been to Target Salt Lake, I'm sorry, first of all. Uh, but uh, it was like Black Friday there yesterday. I mean, like, there were people following people with shopping carts to their car, waiting for them with their blinker on to take their parking spot. You couldn't find a place to park. It was nuts there. And, and Target Salt Lake, the line for, to check out was all the way back to the grocery section, like past the dog food aisle, like all the way back, just to check out, right? Just swarms of people. To think that 90% of them don't know Jesus as Savior, that's heavy. So God forgive us when we're smug about the fact, well, at least we've got the truth. No, no, no. The majority of the world doesn't. It's estimated that 50% of the world's population has never one time heard a clear gospel presentation. Half the world has never heard about what Jesus Christ has done. And again, we don't have to go to remote villages in Africa to find these people. We can walk across the street and find these people. There are people who come to Hui College. I've been in church my whole life. I've never heard the gospel before. So we've got a lot of work to do. And hell is real. People I know and love are headed there. People that I don't know are headed there. Every person that I'm going to see tomorrow will spend eternity somewhere. My wife showed me a, a text that one of our friends had posted on Facebook. I don't do social media, but she always gets the good stuff and sends it my way. One of our friends uh, who used to be a member of Free College who's no longer... Somebody had sent him a, a political text message saying, hey, we're starting this political action group. Want to know if you'd be interested in joining us? And he said, hey, Tracy, thanks for reaching out. I've got a better question for you. If you died today, are you 100% sure where you'd spend eternity? If not, I'd love to share with you. Jesus Christ is the only way. And there was no response to that. But I love it. I love it. Here's somebody who realizes this is the most important thing in the world, more important than who you vote for. The gospel. It's everything to us. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ for the sins of mankind. If you don't have it, you need to get it. There's never been a time in your life where you've been saved. Please understand. I want you to get this if you get nothing else today. If there's never been a time in your life where you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and you've been born again, this great white throne judgment is where you're going. You need to get that. Because you'll stand before God and he doesn't want to hear your sob story or what all you've done. He's gonna say, your name's not here. You gotta go. And that's it. And there's no second chances. If you want to read Luke chapter 16, the Bible says in Luke 16, if there's a great gulf fixed between heaven and hell, and the people in, in hell can see the people in heaven and how they're comforted and how they're loved by God, 
and they're tormented in the flame that they're in. The Bible says that the, the rich man who died and went to hell, Jesus told the story, had consciousness of his past life. And so would you please send somebody to my brothers so that they never have to come here? That there are people in hell that are more concerned about the gospel and eternity of other people than people that walk the earth that call themselves Christians. But it's a big deal. Please understand, if you die in your sins, there's no hope for you outside of this life or the next. But Jesus Christ, you need to be saved. The good news is, all you have to do is repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ. The Bible says we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that we can be saved. It's as simple as believing. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he died for my sins. I'm willing to submit myself to his authority and follow him and I'm asking for forgiveness of my sins. And the Bible says if you do that, you can be saved, born again today, over and done with. And then you're beginning a new work that God wants to do in you. Now you begin that process of sanctification, the growth to be like Jesus, and one day you'll get to see Jesus face to face and you'll be made just like him completely and totally without sin. That's what God wants to do for you. But if you die in your friend's sin, there's, uh, if you die in your sin, friend, there's no hope for you. It's only God's wrath and judgment coming for you. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. It's heavy. But here's the good news. If you would be saved, if you would accept Jesus Christ as your Savior today, you'll never see this. You'll never see condemnation. You'll never see punishment. You'll never see God's wrath. You'll never see hell. And you, my friend, will join all other Christians throughout all world history at the judgment seat of Christ. Here's the good news. Great white throne judgment, terrible news. Good news, every Christian will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Lest you allow this to worry you in any ways, the, the judgment seat of Christ is not a place to fear. The judgment seat of Christ is for every Christian. You don't have to fear the judgment seat of Christ because this is not a place of condemnation. I don't want you to be intimidated by the judgment seat of Christ. I want you to be motivated by the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible says this is not a place of condemnation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. We'll stand at the judgment seat of Christ, and we'll give an account of our life, and the Bible says whether it be good or bad. Now, again, sometimes people have this idea that I'm going to get to heaven, and God's going to roll out this big movie screen, and I'm going to have to watch all the things that I did wrong. And I'm gonna have to give an account for that. I'm gonna have to give an excuse or talk about why I did what I did. Friend, please understand that if you're a child of God, you will never, ever have to answer for your own sin because Jesus answered for you. You'll never be punished for your own sin because Jesus was punished for you. You'll never need to pay for your own sin because Jesus paid for you. You have nothing to fear when it comes to condemnation or payment for your sins. Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. Not a place of condemnation. You don't have to fear. You don't have to give an answer for all the wrong that you've done. Jesus has already answered and his blood was enough. When Jesus hung on that old rugged cross and he suffered and he bled and he died and he said the words, it is finished, 
His payment for your sin was made in full. The day that you cried out to God in faith and repentance and you said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he can pay for my sins and I'm asking God for you to forgive me of my sins and to make me your child. God took every wrong that you've ever done. The Bible says he cast it as far as the east is from the west and he remembers it no more. He took our sins, our iniquities, our transgression, and he cast them into the depths of the sea and we were declared righteous before God. God took our sin and he placed it upon Jesus who put it to death. He took the righteousness of Jesus, he placed it upon us and when God sees us, he only he sees his righteous children. That's all that he sees. And so the idea that a God who would declare us righteous, would declare us forgiven, would on this day of judgment bring back all of our past, that's just not who God is. God's forgiven and it's over and done with. So this is not a place of condemnation. I'm thankful that the Bible tells us in the book of John. John chapter three says, he who hath the son hath life. He who hath not the Son hath not life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You see, if you don't have Jesus, you're going to pay for everything you've ever done. Every evil thought that you've had, every sinful deed that you've done, every curse word that you've uttered, every time you've gossiped about somebody, every time you've thought a lustful thought, every time you've broken God's commands, you will pay for that if you die in your sins. But friend, if you die in Jesus Christ, it's all forgiven. And please understand that God is a just God and requires payment. He doesn't just sweep your sin under the rug and act like it didn't happen. He forgave you. Somebody paid the price for you. It was Jesus. I had the privilege one time of going to traffic court. Um, I had broken the law. I know it's hard for you to believe, but I was driving a little bit faster than I should have. I got pulled over, which is in the state of California. And I uh, appear before the judge, and the judge says, did you do it? And I'm, judge, I did. I'm sorry. I'm not going to give you a sob story of what I was doing or make any excuses. I broke the law, and I'm sorry. And he said, Mr. King, I look at your record. You have no priors. Uh, I'm going to dismiss this charge. It's against you. Please see the clerk on your way out. <laughs> Boom. Done. Yes. Got it. I stop by to see the clerk. I'm going to fill out my paperwork, make sure everything's clear. Go, she's like, $425. No, he said it was clear. Oh, th these are court costs and fees. What? Yeah, you got to pay the court costs and all the fees. And I'm looking through the fees, and some of these fees are like, like road improvement fees. It's like, I've seen the roads in California, and they're not using this money for what they say that they're using it for, right? Look at these, all these other fees that have nothing whatsoever to do with me and anything that I've done, but I still had to pay it. I was frustrated by that. I'm thankful that when God does the work in us, he doesn't require us to do our part, or we got a little portion we've got to pay. He forgives everything. But here's the other thing about God. Can you imagine that judge, every single person that he saw that day going, uh, yeah, I'm going to dismiss that. Yeah, I'm going to dismiss that. Oh, you've broken this law. Yeah, I'm going to dismiss that too. We would say, that's not just. That's a joke of a judge. If you're just going to dismiss everything, there's no justice there. We're all incensed by judges who don't hand down justice. Somebody who commits sexual assault against another human being gets things like probation. Please, we want justice for that, don't we? We can't look at our own sinful condition and go, well, I hope God just sweeps that under the rug. No, God says somebody's got to pay. Either you pay at the great white throne judgment or Jesus can pay for you. But the good news is that Jesus has paid for you. You are forgiven. Your debt has been paid. 
It doesn't get swept under the rug or pretend like it didn't happen. It's paid in full. This will also be a time of accountability, final accountability. The Bible tells a story about the parable of the talents. The master gave one servant five talents, he gave another two, and he gave another one. He said, hey, I'm gonna be back in a little bit. I want you to invest this wisely. Then the master came back and he says, hey, fellas, I wanna make an appointment with each of you and see how you did. First appointment was the guy who had five. He said, hey, I gave you five, what'd you do with it? I invested it wisely and I gave you five more. And the master goes, great job. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord, man. Enjoy this with me. You did well. Second servant comes. He said, I gave you two. What'd you do with those? I took those two and I invested those two and I have two more. He says, man, way to go. Congratulations. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Third servant comes. He says, hey, I gave you one. What'd you do with it? Oh, I knew you were a really hard master and I know that you're not really that wise with what you have, you know, you're, you're spending more money and, and invest in places that maybe you shouldn't. And so I took what you had and I buried it because I was afraid. And the master on that day of accounting doesn't say to him, well, that's disappointing. I wish you at least done something with it. He says, you wicked and slothful servant, you lazy, wicked servant. I gave you something and you squandered it. And he took what he had and he gave it to the one who had 10. You and I one day will stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ and there will be a time of final accounting done where God says, okay, I gave you 70 years. What'd you do with it? Okay, I gave you a job making X amount of dollars a year. What did you do with that? Okay, I gave you influence over these people. How did you use that? Okay, I gave you this family. What did you do with your family? Okay, I gave you this, what did you do with it? And the Bible says that there's gonna be a time of accounting before God, we'll have to give an account. You know, it's, it's funny because when we get our paychecks at the end of the week, you normally get a paycheck stub and it tells you what you paid in towards uh, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, taxes, things like that. And then at the end of the year, the government sends you a thing in the mail saying, hey, here's what you earned, your employer does, and the government says, here's what you earned. Here's what you owe. Because you did this, this is what you owe us now. And there's an accounting process that we have to go through. April 15th, you got to pay your part or face the consequences. Do we really believe that God just continues to give us stuff and doesn't check back in to see how we're using it? Do you think that the government, the United States government, has more uh, authority or oversight over what they have than what God has? You think God just freely gives you this stuff willy-nilly and doesn't expect anything back? No, God expects a return on his investment. He wants to know how you're doing with what he's given you. That's why we talk about all the time stewardship, managing what God's given us in a way that glorifies him because there's coming a day where there'll be a final accounting before God. We'll stand before him and we'll give an account of what we've done with it. This time before God, at the judgment seat of Christ is a time of reward, or loss of reward. Turn your Bibles with me, if you would, over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want you to take a look at this passage so we can fully grasp what it means. 
First Corinthians chapter three, verse number ten. <laughs> now stay here in First Corinthians three, uh, but I want to quote for you Second Corinthians five ten. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And now it talks to us about what that accounting process looks like, giving an account of our life. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that it is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide that which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire. So here's what the Bible says. You and I build our life every single day and it lists six building materials that we use to build our life with. Wood, hay, stubble. The other, gold, silver, precious stones. Six things that it says that we build our life with. And when we stand before God, our entire work is placed upon this fire, and the only thing left are the things that we built that matter for eternity's sake. So the wood, hay, and stubble are the things that really don't matter. You know, who won the Super Bowl last year? Wood, hay, and stubble. Who's going to win this joke of an NBA Finals that we have going on right now? Wood, hay, and stubble. That really powerful video you think that you posted to, to Facebook last week? Wood, hay, and stubble. Arguments on the internet with people? Wood, hay, and stubble. The kind of car that you drive, wood, hay, and stubble. The title that goes in front of your name, wood, hay, and stubble. Where you fall in the company flow chart, wood, hay, stubble. The prayer that you prayed for the unsaved coworker, hold up, gold, silver, precious stone. The time you made a meal for your neighbor and took it to him, that's gold, silver, precious stone. The time that you, sh every single time that you've ever taken one of the invite cards that has the gospel on it and passed it out to a friend, family member, coworker, stranger, waiter or waitress at a restaurant, that's gold, silver, precious stone. The time that you spent praying with your kids before they went to bed, gold, silver, precious stone. The time that you spent pouring over the scriptures, allowing uh, your examination of the scriptures to examine your own heart, Gold, silver, precious stone. And at the end of your life, everything that you have put into your life's work will be placed upon a fire and all the stuff that didn't matter is gonna burn. And the only thing that's left is what you have to show for your life that mattered. And here's what the Bible says about that. Again, if you take a look at verse number 14. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If, ever, if after everything in your life has already burned on the fire and there's anything left, that's your reward. And I remember I was probably, probably 25 years old. Uh, I joined the, the Navy right out of high school and served in the world's finest Navy uh, for six, six years. 
Uh, we got out of, of the military. We started a computer training consulting company here uh, in town at 500 Alamoana Boulevard, Waterfront Plaza. We did that for about three years or so, and we saw incredible success. At In my early 20s, I mean, Angela and I were making six figures for the first time ever. We were on our own business. We were our own bosses. We set our own hours, and everything I'd been taught up to that point in life was you have made it. You're financially secure. You're successful at what you do. You have the esteem of your peers. You get to set your own hours. You get to run your own business. You're a small business owner. You know, you get to call the shots. You're providing value for your community. You've done something that really matters. And man, we felt accomplished. We felt successful. If there's anything we wanted, we just bought it. In a car, you don't finance a car. You just pay cash for it, you know? Just, we felt successful, but here's the thing. It felt very shallow. Wait, people work their whole life to get to the point where I am when I'm 24 years old? What am I supposed to do with the rest of my life then? I'll never forget, as long as I live, there was a visiting pastor in town that was preaching at the church we were attending at the time. And he said these words, at the end of your life, some of you will stand before God embarrassed for the way that you lived your life. That you didn't do anything of any eternal significance, you only did for yourself. And you'll stand before God one day with embarrassment. And the feeling that I have in the pit of my stomach right now is the same feeling that I had that night where I heard that. And I thought to myself, Dear God, I'm going to stand before you and be embarrassed one day because I'm living for myself. I'm living for my own self-indulgence. I'm living for what the world says is the, quote, American dream. I'm living for somebody, something that people said, oh, you'll work your whole life and then maybe one day you'll make it there, but I'm already there and I don't know what to do because there's no second step after this. It's just empty. That I can buy anything I want, but there's nothing that I want to buy. I can go anywhere I want to go, but there's nowhere that I want to go. There was an emptiness. And then I realized the emptiness comes from the fact that I was doing nothing of eternal significance. Had I stood before God at that moment, if I'd fallen over dead, God said, okay, I gave you this stuff, what did you do? Well, I bought a lot of nice cars. We went on a nice vacation. We lived in a really nice house. We bought stuff for our kids. We bought stuff for one another. Um, that's kind of it. It would have been shameful. I remember it like it was yesterday. Went home and Angela and I had a long conversation that night and I said, I don't want to live this way anymore. And she said, me neither. Good. So we made a commitment that night. We're going to start living for not this life, but the next. That's why Jesus says, lay not up for yourself treasure on this earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and steal. Lay up your treasures in heaven. It's not about living for this life and what you can get from this. It's about living for eternity. And friends, some, some of you today, I'm going to tell you the same thing that that pastor told me that night. Some of you one day will stand before God embarrassed for the way that you invested what he gave you. Because you wasted it, you squandered it for yourself, you did not use it for the kingdom. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Unless you think, as I thought as a young, immature Christian, I don't need a reward when I get to heaven. It's not that big of a deal. I don't... I don't need crowns. And if, if my whole life burns as wood, hay, and stubble, hey, the Bible says in, in verse, uh, what is it, in the, our passage, 1 Corinthians 13, um, verse number 15, if any man's work shall be burned, in other words, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. So if your whole life's work just burns up, you're still saved, right? You're still going to heaven, so it's fine. I thought to myself, it's okay. I don't need a reward. I'm fine. I'll just be happy to 
to coast through those pearly gates and be able to high-five St. Peter on the way through and say, hey, I think I'm good until I understood what the Bible says. Revelation chapter 4 says this, the four and 20 elders fall down before him who sat on the throne. John had the opportunity to see into heaven and, and see what was taking place in heaven and he saw the throne room of Jesus Christ. That God the Son sat upon a throne in heaven and he was surrounded by believers throughout all ages and there were 24 elders that sat around the throne and the rest of the believers throughout all ages together with them worshiping Jesus together. Revelation 4.10, and the four and 20 elders fall down before him who sat upon the throne and worship him that live forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, thou art worthy, O Lord. Did you hear that? Cast their crowns before the throne saying, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Oh friend, your reward in heaven is not for you. The crowns that you may receive, a crown of rejoicing, a crown of righteousness, an incorruptible crown, those crowns aren't for you. It's not so that I can wear my reward in heaven. It's for the day that I get to worship Jesus with everybody else. It's for the day that we stand in the throne room of God and say, worthy is the lamb who is slain for the sins of mankind. And we take the rewards that we have that are a direct correlation to the way that we invested our lives and we're able to cast those at the feet of Jesus and say, you are worthy, you were worth it. I did it because you're worthy of my worship. You're worthy of my praise. And this is all that I have to offer you to show what I've done for my life. And had I died as a 24-year-old man, I would have been standing in the back of the room with everybody else with my hands in my pockets because I had nothing to offer. I was just thankful to just be there. I have nothing to offer God because I squandered my life. And I said, I will not go to heaven empty-handed. I refuse. I refuse to just coast through on fumes and do the minimum requirements needed to make it through there. I want to invest my life for something that matters. I want to get to heaven one day and say, I wasn't perfect, but I took what you gave me. I invested it for the cause of Christ. And here I am with everything that I have. And I want to hear from the master, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. I want to hear that. And you know what? Maybe I'm weird. First of all, let me just say, I'm weird. Uh, no maybe, but I'm weird. But you know what? I think about that every single day. Every single day, I think about the day that I'll stand before Jesus. It could be today. We don't have a promise that tomorrow I might be dead by this afternoon. If I do, I'll be standing before Jesus. And I don't want to stand there with regret. I don't want to stand there embarrassed for the way that I live my life. So every single day, I think to myself, I want to do something that matters for the kingdom today. Because I don't want to waste my life. The point of the man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. And so, friend, I don't want the judgment seat of Christ to intimidate you. I want the judgment seat of Christ to motivate you. I want you to realize I'm not living for myself. I'm living for eternity. I'm not living for what I can get out of this life. I'm living for the glory of God. I'm not living, I'm not doing what I'm doing for me. I'm doing it because when I stand before God, my entire life's work will be placed upon a, a furnace of fire and it's gonna burn. I want something that matters to stick around. That's why 
I want to pray with my kids. That's why I want to talk about spiritual things. That's why Angela and I pray and fast for our children that they'll walk in holiness and righteousness. That's why I want to be a part of a loving church family that has a desire for the gospel and to see people saved. That's why I want to be around other men that can help me and sharpen me and encourage me. That's why Angela and I want to spend time with couples who give life to us and we can give life to. Why? Because I realize oh, this life is very short. Eternity is very long. I don't want to just get there by hitting the minimum requirements. I want to get there thankful that I was able to spend my life for the cause of Christ. And I want you to do the same talk about glorification when it comes to glorification the bible says upon the believer's death we will be with jesus and we will be like jesus that's what we're talking about when we talk about glorification the apostle paul says in ephesians 1 13 upon whom you trusted after you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and whom after that you also believe that you were sealed with that holy spirit of promise which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession of the praise of glory ephesians 1 says it this way just like you would, in the process of buying a house, you would put down a down payment or sometimes referred to as earnest money. You open escrow to say, hey, here's this payment that basically makes this house mine. I'm not yet finished with the transaction, but I'm gonna come back and complete the rest of the transaction because it belongs to me. The Bible says that God gave you the Holy Spirit as an earnest to basically mark his ownership in your life. The day that you got saved, you received the Holy Spirit as a mark of ownership as an earnest to God, for God to say, I'm coming back for this one day, and when I do, I'm going to complete the transaction fully. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to perform it, to complete it, to bring it to maturity until the day of Jesus Christ. That's the idea behind this. God's not done with your work yet. There'll be a day where you see Jesus and you'll be made like him. John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, now we are the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath a hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. I love what John says. John is so candid. John says this, now, we don't really know what it's going to be like when we see him, but here's what we do know. You know, that's why I love Bible-believing Christians, because we can just say, you know, I don't really know. The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't have to make up some story, or here's a story that's been passed down through the ages, through, you know, the church fathers or church history. We don't have to make stuff up. We can just say, I don't know, the Bible doesn't really tell us. And John says this, we don't really know what it's going to be like, but here's what we do know. When we see him, we'll be made like him. And we will see him as he is. Paul tells us that right now we see through a glass dimly, but then we'll see face to face. We don't really get it right now, but there's coming a day when we will. I love the promise that we have in 2 Corinthians 5.8. We're confident, I say, willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Friend, you and I, when this life is over, if you're a child of God, when you take your last breath here, you'll be in the presence of God and you'll be perfect. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more pain. Sometimes when we talk about people who have endured long health trials and they, they pass away and they're Christians, we say, they're not in any pain any longer. And they might have been in a wheelchair in the last days of their life. And man, they're, they're running down those streets of gold up in heaven right now because God is bringing them to a point of full restoration. Pain's passed away. Now they're with Jesus, and there's hope there. 
final few thoughts today and we're done. First of all, I want to help you prepare for the day that you meet Jesus. We don't know what when that day will be, but here's what I do know. It'll be sooner than you think it is. All of us have this idea that, you know, we're going to be like, uh, you know, 105, rocking our great-great-grandkids on the front porch and just fall asleep on the, the front porch and never wake up. That just isn't probably reality for most of us. I hope it is. I hope it happens for you. But you might be planning my funeral by next Sunday. I don't know. But I need to be ready for that. I want you to prepare for the day that you meet Jesus. You know, sometimes we watch these dramatic TV shows where somebody gets bad news from the doctor and the doctor says, I'd encourage you right now to get your affairs in order. Hey, look, I'd encourage you today to get your affairs in order. If there's sin in your life right now, would you repent of it, confess it, forsake it, be done with it and move on and never pick it up ever again? If there's something you need to make right with God, would you make it right today, not wait around until someday maybe? If you have hard feelings towards another Christian, would you make that right and confess it today? If there's somebody you should apologize to, would you pick up the phone today and apologize to them? Because you don't have a promise of tomorrow and you need to be prepared for the day that you meet the Lord. So I would just encourage you to live every day like it's your last. The guy that I was in high school band with, um, lost touch with him, never talked to him after high school. But I heard that he was, uh, had, uh, was, delivering pizza and passed away. He was like 36 at the time. I remember that hit me because, you know, when you're 25, you're totally invincible. Nothing can, nothing can hurt you. When you're 35, you're thinking like, hey, I'm getting like life expectancy in the United States is, you know, 75, 76. I'm kind of pushing to the halfway point. And at 35, you're thinking to yourself like, I'm not invincible, but I'm not not happening anytime soon. And then when you get news, it's like somebody that you talked to before that was went to high school with died. And I remember it sounds morbid and I already told you I'm weird. But I wrote down on a three by five card, I could die today, get ready. I put that three by five card in my pocket. I put it on my nightstand at night when I went to bed. I put it in my pocket the next morning before I left for work. I just needed to remember that every day could be my last. Make it a good one. I never want to leave the house without kissing my wife and telling her that I love her. I don't want to ever, you know, tell my kids, leave the house without telling my kids that I love them. I think the world of them. I don't want there to be hard feelings between me and someone else. I don't want to be steeped in sin that, uh, that somebody's going to find out about one day. Just know this. When you die, every possession you have, somebody's going to go through it. Every single bit of it. You know, every text message you send, every Facebook message you send, somebody's going to have to look through all that stuff. And I wouldn't, I would hate to think that anybody would find something that would bring shame upon my testimony or the name of Jesus Christ. Just get ready for the day that you meet Jesus. That's what I'm trying to say. And again, for all of you, I hope it's 75 years from now for you. I really do. But get ready today. Be prepared for it. Next, be cognizant of the fact that you're going to be held accountable for everything that God has given you and how you stewarded it. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know if God's going to have, uh, I don't know if God has like an inventory control system of all the stuff that he gave you. He's going to check, what'd you do with this? You know, what'd you do with that? It's just like, I don't know how it's going to work. All I know is that I'm going to be held responsible for it. And I want to be able to steward it well. I really try to, Angela and I have tried to, to uh, for the last 10 plus years, tried to live within our means and not get into credit card debt. I think credit card debt is of the devil. I think student loans are of the devil. 
Let me just say that. Because it puts you under financial pressure that you don't have an opportunity to get out from under. And the, if we believe that God's given us everything that we need for life, we need to, to believe that God will provide for us and take care of us. I, I believe that. So we've tried to steward our finances in such a way because I know I'm going to have to give an account of our finances one day. We've tried to steward our children well, to manage them well, because I'm going to have to give God an account of how I, I took care of my kids. I'm going to have to give God an account of my marriage one day. I don't have to give God an account of the influence that he's given me, the friends that he gave me, the relationships that I have. I'm going to have to give an account of that, and I need to be ready so I want to steward well. That when I get there on the day at the judgment seat of Christ, I don't want to be like, oh, man, this is going to be painful. I want to say, hey, I was not perfect. You already know that. But I did my best, and I lived every single day getting ready for this moment right here. That's what I did be cognizant of the fact to be held accountable. Next, live for the day that you get to see Jesus face to face. (laughs) I don't know what it would be like when we get to see Jesus. I just know it's going to be awesome. To think of the person that I've prayed to, prayed with for decades, my best friend, I'll get to see him face to face the one who endured my punishment on the cross. And he did it willingly to pay for my personal sins. And the gratitude, the worship, the adoration, the praise that will fill my heart the day that I get to see him. And I can't wait. Sometimes you hear people say foolish things. I can't wait to get to heaven. I'm going to give Jesus a great big bear hug. I don't think so. I really don't. Because when John was in heaven and he heard a voice behind him, he just went face down. And it was an angel who said, John, stand up. It's me. I'm an angel. Just get up. And he's like, oh, sorry about that. I don't think we're going to be bear hugging anybody, you know? (laughs) People say the most crazy off-the-wall stuff. I can't wait to get to heaven. I'm going to get up in God's lap and let him read me a book. Not that kind of father, you know? Read the Bible. Come on. But I want you to think to yourself, one of these days I'm going to have to look Jesus Christ in the face and give an account for the way that I live my life. I want to be ready for that. And I want to do it with excitement, with gratitude, with thankfulness, with worship. I want to help you as your pastor to help you to live your life in such a way that you meet Jesus with joy, not regret. That's what I want for you. I want to prepare you so well for the judgment seat of Christ, that the day that you get to see Jesus, you're just like, yes, yes, this is it. This is what I've waited for. I can't wait. I don't want you standing with your hands in your pockets going, I don't really have anything to offer. I squandered everything that I had. I didn't know any better. Nobody helped me. Nobody encouraged me. Nobody told me what. I want you to be like, yes, this is it. This is the moment that I've been waiting for. Not perfect, but man, I am thrilled with the opportunity to be able to give to Jesus Christ the culmination of my entire life's work. Everything that I am, everything that I was is yours because I love you, I worship you, I adore you. Oh man, I want to help you with that. But you can't start getting prepped like for when time gets close because you don't know when that day is going to be. You got to start living that way today. 
Again, you can't start saving for retirement when you're closer to retirement, right? I remember my dad. I love my dad to death. He didn't prepare me for, for life financially. Uh, he didn't tell me how to balance a checkbook. He didn't uh, warn me of the dangers of credit card debt and things like that. I, I made a lot of mistakes. But here's one thing he did tell me when I was like 17. Anthony, if every single time you get paid, you'll take $100 and put it in some type of retirement account. Just do that at 17 years old. Do that. I promise you, you will be set for life the time that you're my age. And you know what I said? Do you know what I can do with $100 per pay period? Like, seriously. Like, who wants to live like that? And you know what I did? I blew it. I didn't take my dad's advice. And then I got to be like 35 years old, and I realized, wait a minute. And so then I started doing the math, and like starting at 35 isn't as good as starting when you're 17. The same principle applies here. Starting to live for Jesus when you're 40, 50, 60, when, again, you don't even have a promise of, of living that long. No, no, no. Start living for Jesus today. Start laying up treasure in heaven today. Start preparing for the judgment seat of Christ today and continue to just keep banking spiritual bank, spiritual treasure all, all the time, every single day, living for Jesus, living for things that matter. I'm gonna invest my life in gold, silver, precious stone. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time with wood, hay, and stubble. Hey, look, you wanna say ugly things on the internet? I got a lot of things I could say, but that's just wood, hay, and stubble, and I'm just focusing on gold, silver, and precious stone today. I don't have time for that. You wanna talk trash about me? You wanna gossip about me? That's fine, it's wood, hay, and stubble. I'm not gonna give over to that. I just want Jesus to be praised. I'm gonna focus, I'm gonna rearrange my priorities so the things that are important are really important. I tell our guys this all the time. Your priorities aren't what you say they are. Your priorities are how you live every day. And so I want to encourage you to prioritize eternal things. Final thought. I want you to live a life that was worth Jesus dying for. For God, so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loved you so much that he sacrificed his own son because of his love for you. Use that investment wisely. I was talking with a family member several years ago. They wanted my boys to go watch an R-rated movie with them. And I said, our family doesn't watch R-rated movies. It's just one of the decisions we made as part of our sanctification process. We don't need garbage entertainment in our life. We just made that decision. And this person said, well, the Bible says that Jesus died to set us free from the law. Jesus doesn't want us to live under rules and regulations and guidelines that we have to follow anymore. That's why Jesus came. Mm, I think that's a misapplication of Scripture. Jesus died so that we could be set free from the Levitical law of the Old Testament. We don't have to follow rules, regulations to go to heaven, but we still have to follow God's guidelines of holiness for sanctification. And he goes, you got it all wrong. Jesus died so that we can watch already movies. <laughs> what? That very well could be like top 10 dumbest things I've ever heard in my entire life. No. 
Jesus didn't die so that you can have your own way. Jesus didn't die so you can do your own thing. And contrary to popular Christianity in America, Jesus didn't die so that you can have your own little coffee shop and live your American dream and that you can be artsy and, and, and post cute pictures on Instagram. Jesus didn't die for that. He died because he started a work in you to save you, to justify you, to declare you righteous so that he would take you through the rest of your life conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ so that one day you could see him, you'd be made perfect like him, you'd stand before him, you'd give an account of your life and you'd do it with joy and that you'd worship him for all of eternity with the fruits of the labor of your entire life. That's why Jesus died. That's the good stuff. Jesus didn't die to just punch your ticket to heaven and say next. He died so that you could be made like him. And again, I got no time for Christianity that quotes verses out of context and half of verses. We know that all things work together for good, dot, dot, dot. No, read the rest of the verse and the verse after that. All things work together for good to them that love God and who are the called according to his purpose. That's, a, first of all, a promise for Christians. But if you take a look at Romans 8, 29, you know what it says? Why all things work together for good? Not so that you can have a nice carefree life, but so you can be conformed into the image of his son. All of life is about being made more like Jesus. That's it. So, walk in this sanctification process. Prepare yourself for the day that you get to see Jesus face to face. And for heaven's sake, don't forget that there are people that you know and love that will not be in heaven with you if you do not give them the gospel. We have these green cards printed out. Our ushers uh, have some. I got one somewhere. Where they at? Oh, I think. Oh, here they are. Yeah. We got these cards. Our ushers will have packs of five of these on your way out today. Grab some of these. This card here says on the front, Who We Call a Baptist Church. Very simple. Three icons. There's the. Uh, People wearing masks icon, the social distancing icon, and the hand-washing icon. That's it. On the back, short note, service time. Three-quarters of the back of this, you know what it's covered with? The gospel. You know why? Because we want people to know Jesus and follow him. We're not trying to get people to show up for our church services. I'm thankful if they do. Service times are on here. Our church website's on there. That's not the end goal. The end goal is the gospel. Our goal is not to get as many people through the front door as possible. If that were the case, we'd have pictures of people smiling on the back here. We'd have pictures of kids doing crafts and laughing. We'd have on here ladies uh, in Instagram-worthy photos of drinking coffee and reading the Bible together while they, they laugh and there's no children around, right? That's what we do, <laughs> right? Everybody wants that, right? If that's the goal is to get people through the front door, that's what we would do. But that's not the goal. The goal is the gospel, the mission of the church is the gospel, to go, win, baptize, teach, the Great Commission. It's why Jesus came, to seek and to save that which was lost. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. He came to serve. And we're all about Jesus. We're all about the gospel. That's why three-quarters of the back of this is the gospel, not about our church and how cool we are, how trendy we are, how fun we are. No, we're talking about how great Jesus is. So, let us not forget that while we're preparing ourselves for the day we see Jesus, friend, 90% of our island is standing in the danger of God's wrath and judgment. That's a conservative estimate. And I praise God that we're not the only church on the island that's preaching the gospel. I praise God that we're not the only biblically sound church on the island. But friend, we cannot just sit and hope that people might possibly hear the truth. Got to go. 
We've got to tell them. We've got to live lives that point people to Jesus Christ. We've got to live lives that point people to the gospel. We've got to surround our lives with this. Most important thing in the world today, if you're here today and you do not know for sure that you're saved, you're not 100% sure that heaven is your home, please do not leave here today without knowing for sure your sins are forgiven. For guys, we'd be happy to have another guy sit down with you and talk with you. I can know for sure your sins are forgiven. For ladies, we'd have another lady in our church open the Bible and just talk with you, not about how to join our church or how to become a Baptist or uh, how to join a class or how to get baptized. Talk about how you can know for sure today before you walk out the front door that you're a child of God and your sins are forgiven. Please don't leave here without that because you stand in danger of God's wrath and judgment. Hell is coming for you and you don't know when your number's up. But for those of us that know Jesus Christ as Savior, Let's live like this week. If you really believe you're going to have to stand before God one day and give an answer for the way that you lived your life, wouldn't you want to do it in a way that would bring you joy on that day? Where you go, yeah, I'm thankful. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but I did my best. I've been waiting for this. I've been looking forward to this. And what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see oh, the look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land, what a day, glorious day that will be, man. What a day that's going to be. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. I'm thankful for all that. Please never, as long as you live, lose sight of the fact that many of the people that you know and love will never be there on that day if you don't do something about it. Live a life that points people to the gospel and share truth with people. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.